Today, I want to talk about something that Jesus had to say that it stands alone by itself, but really God has been building a narrative over the period of centuries before Jesus says what he has to say. Uh, And so I want to talk about the context around that, because you've probably been in situations where um, something meant a big deal, it meant a lot to some of the people who had the context, but to the people who had no idea what was going on, it meant nothing. Has that happened to you? Uh, in all situations, context is really important. So like, just for example, um, how about this sign right here? Uh, Eagles parking only. I have some ideas about what that might mean. Uh, I don't think it's actually like a literal eagle gets to park there. Uh, I'm familiar with, you know, there's a club, uh, a large organization called the Eagles. It might be that this is one of their gathering places, and so they can park there. But it might be something totally different, right? I have no idea because I don't have any context. Sometimes you just don't, you don't know for sure. Like this picture right here, uh, I have no idea what's happening in that picture. <laughs> it could be like making a point. I have no idea what that point might be. It could be just something act, someone acting ridiculous. Uh, it's funny either way, but I still I have no idea because I don't know the context. I, I, don't know, I don't know what's going on there. Um, and sometimes, without context, you just don't know what to do, so you do whatever is necessary to get out of the situation. Like one time, uh, Pastor Rick and I used to work for the same company, and um, he was a store manager. He managed one of the stores that the company owned, and I worked in the corporate office. Well, one day he's working, he's managing his store, and, and my office was upstairs uh, on the next floor above the store. He calls my desk, and he says, hey, there's a guy in the store with a pig, and the pig is just running all over the place. I don't, I don't know what to do in this situation, so I did what you would do. I said, yeah, I'm not falling for that one again, and I hung up the phone. <laughs> I didn't know what to do, so I just got out of the situation as quickly as possible, because truthfully, like, what was I going to do that he wasn't going to do? Like, tackle the pig? Well, okay, you've seen me. You've seen Pastor Rick. Like, he's more capable of tackling things than I am. Uh, I just didn't know what to do, so I just tried to get out of the situation. Well, there's situations kind of like this, not with tackling pigs, but situations like this in the Bible, they just, they don't mean the same thing without enough context. Some require more than others. Some will stand alone, but today is one of those. So what we see is in John 14, Jesus is using kind of a, like a reverse Socratic method. Uh, Socratic method involves, like if I'm the teacher I ask you questions to teach you, like I try to lead you to the answer by helping you come with your your own answers. Well, Jesus is basically, um, he's saying things that will create questions for the students, the disciples, so they ask the questions and then he he answers. So he's kind of using this uh, reverse Socratic method on them. Uh, He's creating the questions. And it begins actually in the previous chapter in uh, John 13, 36, where Peter asks him a question. Jesus has just told him that he's going away and Peter asks where are you going? Lord, where are you going? I mean, that's a perfectly valid question. And here's how Jesus responds in John 14, verse 1. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. I love the fact that he leads with that part. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back And take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. He says, my father's house has many rooms. The the word in the original language in Greek for house uh, is the word oikia. Uh, No wonder they translate it to house because oikia doesn't really roll off the tongue. 
Uh, But it doesn't just mean house. It means a literal dwelling, like we might refer to our house, but it also implies the family. So a better translation that would make sense for us is kind of how we use the word home. Uh, Our home is not the same as the building, the structure, the house. Uh, It is that, but it's also the environment, the people. Uh, Our home is a little bit broader. Similar to how we use the word home, it also implies the family circle. Now, we're not going to be able to exegete this entire section of Scripture today, uh, so I want to just give you two things that I really hope you can grab onto, uh, two things that truthfully will sustain you emotionally and spiritually through some of life's really difficult, uh, dark times. The first one is this. In your heavenly Father's home, there's a place for you. Think about the implications of that. In God's home, not just in his house, not just in, you know, heaven somewhere, there's a structure for you. But in his home, in his family, he's made a place for you. Now, that is no small thing. Uh, that, that is a really, really big deal. God has accounted for you. At his table, there's a seat that nobody else is going to sit in. He's got a spot for you. Jesus just, just said that he's preparing a place for you. And when he did that, when he went and prepared a place for all of us, he made sure there's a spot for you. I don't know all of what that looks like, but what we do know is that in God's home, there's a place for you. You can rest assured of that. Uh, That's really good news, by the way. Uh, There's a place for you. The second one uh, that's equally as important is that Jesus is the way to that home. He's he's the way to get there. John 14, 5, the next verse, comes the next question. Thomas asks, Lord... We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? That's a pretty reasonable question. If I don't know where you're going, how could I possibly know the way? How do we get to your father's house? Verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus declares emphatically, I am the way to God. The internal longing for the meaning of life, the desire we all have to understand the meaning of life, why am I here, what's the point of my existence? Jesus says, I am the answer to that riddle. I'm the answer to that. The desire for significance, uh, one of our great fears, I believe, is the fear of being insignificant, of having our life not matter. Jesus says, I am the answer to that desire. This lifelong pursuit of fulfillment, it's a pursuit that we're all in. Uh, we're, all, we're all chasing it. We're all searching for the truth, the meaning, the fulfillment in our lives. Jesus says, I am the prize at the end of that pursuit. This is the biggest statement as has ever been made, really, in human history. If you know me, you know God. When we understand that our final destination is at God's house, in God's home, where he's made a place for us. Some of the other things that get a lot of our time and attention, they become a lot smaller, don't they? Some of the other things that I really fret about and worry about are actually not that big of a deal when I understand that my final destination is to be in God's home, where he's prepared a place for me, a place where all the other things I'm worried about, they're they're not there. They're taken care of. They don't exist anymore. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a pretty bold claim in and of itself. Uh, But this is where the context part comes in. Uh, This is where all of that 
I mean, that's sort of broad language. Okay, you're the way. That's, that's like a big statement. You're the truth. Well, that, what does that mean? What does a lot of that mean? This is where understanding the context will, will really be helpful to us. Uh, this is number six of seven statements Jesus made that we refer to as the I am statements of Christ. Uh, some of you probably studied those. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty, interesting, pretty interesting stuff. So the context begins about 1,400 years before Jesus lived. Uh, we find it in Exodus chapter 3. Now, just, just as a frame of reference, if you wind the clock backwards 1,400 years from today, uh, you'd find yourself in the 600s, the 7th century. This was when Islam was founded. This is when Muhammad lived. I mean, it's a really long time ago. Uh, 1,400 years before Jesus lives, Exodus 3, here's what happens. I'm going I'm to give you the cliff notes on it. Uh, God comes to Moses because his people, the Israelites, they're in captivity in Egypt. Egypt was the greatest empire to that, up to that point that the world had ever seen, uh, and they had enslaved entire nations of people. And so the Israelites are enslaved uh, in Egypt. This was how you got things done back then when they didn't have mechanisms like we do. And uh, and so they're there. God comes to Moses at a place called Midian, and he says, I want you to go back to Egypt and lead my people out of captivity. Now, just think how you would feel if God came to you and said, I want you to go to the most powerful empire the world has ever seen and lead an entire nation out of captivity. Well, Moses is intimidated. He says, no way. And God says, Yahweh. <laughs> oh, Wow. I don't know if that was a dad joke or a pastor joke or both, and some of you are like, what are you talking about? I don't get it. I know. It's okay. Uh, But it actually has relevance in this case. Uh, It's actually important to this particular situation. Oh, that was dumb. I shouldn't have said that. So Moses is afraid to return to Egypt. Okay, if you don't understand that joke, you're going to in a second. And if you need to LOL, that's laugh out loud, uh, feel free once it makes sense to you. Moses is afraid to go back to Egypt and lead the Israelites out of captivity. Now, there have probably been times in your life when you felt like, okay, God wants me to do this. Uh, He wants me to talk to that person, help that person, take this leap of faith, whatever it might be. And even though you were pretty sure God was with you, there was still fear, right? Uh, Hopefully that's not just me. I got a couple nods of approval, so at least it's like three of us. Uh, So it's not just me. That's, That's the important thing. Moses is afraid, and so he says... No. He tells God, hmm, he objects. Now, here's the thing. Uh, a pastor named Graham Cook often says that no, Lord, the phrase no, Lord, is total oxymoron, right? Because as soon as you say no, he's not Lord anymore, you are, because you're the one making, making the decision. So he says no, but then he finally agrees. Uh, God basically just scares the heck out of him, uh, and he, he finally agrees to go back to Egypt, but he asks a really important question. Exodus 13 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of our fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? I'll go there and tell them what you want me to say, but who should I tell them sent me? What's your name? I think that's a pretty valid question. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. In Hebrew, that is pronounced Yahweh. There it is. There's, there's the joke. Uh, Yahweh, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me. Moses says, what's your name? And God says, I am. Now, if I'm Moses, I'm thinking, 
Of course it is, because someone named I am is about the most terrifying and intimidating thing I can possibly think of. He could have said, like, tell them your majesty has sent you, but compared to I am, like, that's just not very intimidating. So he, he goes back. Uh, God has revealed his proper name, his personal name, just like your name is Jessica or Ron or Cheryl. I am, his proper name. Now, fast forward just a couple of years from there. Moses goes back through a sequence of events. He leads the people uh, out of captivity. And then they come to a place as they're, as they're venturing out to their own land. They come to a place called Mount Sinai. And uh, Moses speaks with God and God gives him the law. Uh, we, know, we refer to it as the Ten Commandments. Uh, but for them, this governed every area of their life, not just their faith, but also their relationships and their civil interaction uh, God gives them, gives them the law, the Ten Commandments. The second commandment in Exodus 27 says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Yah means I am. You shall not misname it. Uh, you shall not misuse it or you shouldn't take it in vain. Don't misuse the name of God. Now, for us, this is, this is not a thing, right? Because we all know people who have made like second careers out of taking God's name in vain. You just go to work with Joel for a day uh, at the sheet metal worker shop, and you will find out there are people who almost seemingly do nothing else but take God's name in vain. The second commandment, don't misuse the name of God. So here's how serious they were about this. From that time forward, no one would even say it for fear of using it in a way that was irreverent or disrespectful to God, misusing it. They wouldn't say it at all. They wouldn't even write it. No one would use it. It it just disappeared from their language other than the story I just read to you where Moses documents his interaction with God. 1,400 years, no one says, I am, until Jesus comes along. Jesus comes along, and the people start asking him, well, who are you? What's your, what's your deal? What's up with you? And Jesus says, he uses these I am statements. Uh, and so right away, like, people are, are extremely offended because for 1,400 years, no one has said I am. No one has used God's name in this way. So what Jesus does in this context is he says I am, and then he uses a physical need to demonstrate how he's the answer to a spiritual internal need. God has created us in two parts. We have, we have an ex- external and an internal, a spiritual and a physical. Okay, you, you all, this makes sense to all of you uh, because uh, all of us have felt unwell physically. We've been sick. We've been injured. Uh, you know, we get to the end of the holidays and we don't feel good physically and our clothes don't fit right. And thing, We've all been unwell physically. We've also probably all been unwell internally, probably all been sad, discouraged, depressed, angry. We've all experienced things like that. Uh, We have an internal and an external. One can be well while the other is sick, but both matter. We tend to pay closer attention to the external, and I don't just mean like materially. I mean like when I have a headache, I go lay down because it's easy to observe when things are not well physically, uh, and it's easy to decide what to do about it. Um, when I'm cold, I put on a coat or a sweatshirt or something like that. But taking care of the internal is, even, is more difficult to see, and it's more difficult to do. I would contend that it's actually more important. So, uh, so what I want to do is I'm going to run through the six of seven statements uh, fairly quickly. They might be worth 
writing down if you're taking notes because uh, they address some really serious human longings, things that we all experience. Really, Jesus is saying, I am the answer to this problem when we get to these I am statements. So, uh, so I'm going to go through them pretty, pretty quickly. The seventh one we haven't gotten to yet. It's in chapter 15. So we'll let that one stand alone when we get to it. The first one is this. John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus claims to be the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. 1,400 years have gone by. No one has said the phrase, I am. Jesus breaks the silence by saying, I am the bread of life. Now, does your physical body need food to survive? Yes, it does. Without it, you'll be weak, you'll be sick, you'll be frail, and you'll be eventually dead. Okay, that's, we all know that. Does your internal self need food to survive? Yes, it does. Without it, you'll be weak, you'll be sick, you'll be frail, and eventually as good as dead. Jesus is food to feed the internal spiritual self. Uh, Brandy and Hannah were out of town for a couple days last week, and it was like the worst 16 hours of my life, even though I was asleep for like seven of them. Uh, But when they were gone, Micah was staying the night with a buddy, and so Ezra, our younger son, he's 10, we transformed our house magically into what we called man land, which basically meant that we pushed the couch up in front of the TV to watch football. We ate a lot of meat, we ate half a pie and some Halloween candy, and at the end of it all, I was as good as dead. (laughs) It took probably five or six days worth of detox just to get back to normal. Like, I didn't I mean, it was just so weird. Like, can you imagine a situation where I wouldn't want to eat meat? That happened to me. Uh, like, I would look at a pie and not want it. How, how terrible is that? Uh, but that's what happens when you feed yourself junk food, right? That's, that's going to happen. Well, what are the things that you're feeding yourself in the pursuit of happiness, that you're feeding your internal self? What's on your phone? What do you listen to in your car? What conversations do you have? Whose opinions do you value? Sometimes even things like, um, seeking counsel from people who are more like pop psychologists than they are actually wise. Um, sometimes we feed ourselves junk in that way. Just like your body needs good food to thrive, your soul needs good food, the bread of life. In the same way that your body needs food, your internal self has a longing for Jesus. He wants to answer that need in your life. Second one, I am the light of the world. Jesus says in John 8, 12, uh, it says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When I was a kid, uh, we had some family friends who had a lake cabin in Montana. So as you can imagine, like all of Montana is basically seclusion. Uh, But this one was like really secluded because it was in Montana seclusion. And one of the things we loved to do was go night swimming. So we'd go out and jump off the dock at night. And when, you're, when it's nighttime in Montana, in the woods, it's really dark. And there is only one way to figure out when you pop back up out of that water where to go. It's to, to swim toward the light on the cabin because it's the only light anywhere. You follow the light, right? I know that sounds like a, it should be on ET or something. But you swim toward the light. Now, here's the deal. Uh, I hope I'm not bursting anybody's bubble here, but... Uh, hopefully you knew this already, you're getting older and eventually your physical body will expire. I know, that's a huge shock. Um, That's going to happen though. Eventually we're all going to come to the end of our life. And the truth is, 
humans aren't getting any morally better as a collective. Uh, we're not getting more peaceful, more loving. That's, that's just not happening. As, as much as uh, we want to believe as a society that things like tolerance and equality and prosperity are eventually going to um, take us to a place of perfection, history says that's not what's going to happen. I'm in favor of all of those things. I'm just saying I've come to grips with the fact that those things are not the light. I want all of them to happen, but they're not the light. How do you find your way in a dark world? You follow the light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Number three, Jesus says, I am the door. Some translations say gate. Uh, they do the same thing, though, right? They keep the good in. They keep the bad out. John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I am the doorway to heaven. I am the doorway to God's home, to God's plan for your life. Verse 28, later on, a little bit later on, he goes on to say, I will give them, the people who pass through the door, I will give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Now, we live in a day of universalism. You do you. You believe what you're going to believe. It's all good. God, whatever God's like out there, the universe and universe juice, God is not going to keep anybody out of heaven. He's not going to close the door on anybody. Here's my objection to that. Uh, yes, God is a loving God. Uh, let me ask you a question, though. Do you have a door on your house? Yes, you do. If you don't, you should really think about getting one. Um, I strongly recommend it. Why do you have a door on your house? To keep the good in, to keep the bad out. You have a door on your house because you love your family, because you value yourself, the other people, the things that are inside. Uh, you want to keep the good in and the bad out. That's why the door exists. In fact, if someone said to you, you know, I really don't like you and your family. I find you all annoying and I don't want anything to do with you. Can I live with you? What would you say? You would say no. You would close the door. Well, for the same reason, God has a door on his home to keep the good in and the destructive, harmful things out. A relationship with Jesus means you get to become adopted into that family. You get to therefore be a part of the home, come into the home. Number four, John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I don't want to offend your sensibilities because we all know that sheep are kind of dumb and they're basically defenseless, but Jesus just said you're a sheep. Uh, be mad at him. Sheep are not self-sufficient. That, that is a reality. There are just things in life that we can't control. There are some that we can there are some that we can at least have the illusion of control over, but the reality is most of the really big things in life are remarkably out of our control. Jesus loves his sheep, and what we see in his life um, as testament to his words in this section is that he will fight to the death to defend his sheep. I had a staff member who worked for me one time. Uh, she was a little bit older than me. She was in her late 40s, and she had just been through just a really sad, sad divorce. I mean, they're all sad. They're all sad. Um, but she just been through the most horrible situation, and effectively what happened was her husband had just decided, you know what, it's just easier for me, for you and the kids to go do your thing. I'm going to go have a new life somewhere else. So there she was in her late 40s, starting everything all over, and she just couldn't figure out why that was a better option for him. Understandable. Uh, that's, a, that's a tough question to answer. And the question that she would ask was, I just, 
I can't understand why he wouldn't fight for me, fight for our family, fight for her marriage. And I would say, I can't understand it either. I can't imagine, I can't get my head around why he would possibly have, have done that. So far away from where, where I live. Jesus, Jesus has said, I am the good shepherd. I will never leave you or forsake you. If you've ever been forsaken, that means something to you. Um, if you haven't, it still means something to you. Jesus has said, I am the good shepherd. I will be there. He will be there. You can count on him. Number five, he said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks a great question. Do you believe this? Uh, we live in interesting times. We live in times where um, everyone seems to be trying to stay younger, uh, which is cool. I can sort of, I can sort of get that. Um, but we're just not that good at aging gracefully as a society. There's all kinds of really funny things that we do uh, to try and stay younger. We have a friend who's... Uh, who's our age, and so her mom is like, you know, 60-ish. I mean, she's at that age. I mean, she's a shopaholic, and our friend gets so annoyed with her because her mom's favorite store is Forever 21. <laughs> now, if you've never been there, the name should give it away. Listen, um, if you're a senior citizen, there's nothing wrong with being a senior citizen. People who make fun of getting old only do that because they haven't lived long enough to realize there's a lot of things that are better about being old than there are about being young. Um, but if you're a senior citizen, don't dress like a teenager, okay? Can we just make that a pact? Uh, okay, I'm 41. If you're my age, let's just make a deal that when we're senior citizens, we're not going to dress like teenagers. Uh, so I totally understand why she, why she would be annoyed with that. But the reality is we are all going to come to the end of our life. That's, that's going to happen. I don't even personally think it's a bad thing. I hope it's a long ways away. I love the life I have. But I don't even think it's a terrible thing. Some of us aren't going to get the chance to be old before that happens, statistically. And the most important moment of your existence is the one right after that happens. The most important of your existence, moment of your existence is what happens right after your physical body expires. Jesus offered an actual solution, not a shopping spree at Forever 21. He said, follow me, and you will never have to deal with that problem. Your physical body will expire, but you will live. Jesus offers a solution. He's defeated death. We no longer have to fear death. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote uh, one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. Most people quote it and have no idea it's from the Bible. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, he says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where is your sting? Where is it? It doesn't exist because it's been defeated. God has a place for you in his house. That's pretty good news. Number six, the last one. Uh, the one we're on today in John 14. 1,400 years go by, no one says the phrase, I am, and then Jesus shows up in today's text, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus claims to be the definitive way to know God. Um, that's, that's offensive to some because it's this idea of like exclusivis, exclusivity. Whew, I got through that. Uh, I totally get that. 
There's a couple possibilities with this statement, and all of them, really. Uh, the statement is either true or it's false, right? There's not really a middle ground where you can be like kind of the way or kind of the truth. Uh, he either is or he isn't. C.S. Lewis famously uh, said, and I'm paraphrasing, not quoting, that if Christianity is not true, if Jesus is not who he claimed to be, and it's not even necessarily like this horrible thing, it's just not really of any consequence. You haven't really gained or lost anything. If it's not true, it's just not true. But if it is true, then it's the most consequential thing in the history of the world, in the history of humanity. Jesus said to his disciples, if you're not sure about whether or not you believe my words, then believe my actions and my impact. Believe the signs that I do. Now, we're not there firsthand to see the signs, but I can tell you, uh, as, I, as I do often, um, that everything about my life is better and more meaningful because Jesus is in it. It uh, doesn't mean everything's perfect, but everything about my life is better and more meaningful because Jesus is in it. Uh, as I've said so many times, there's not a moment I would look back on and think, that would have been better if Jesus wasn't part of my life. That, that moment doesn't, it doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. He said, whoever believes in him and follows him, orients their life around him and his will, will see fruit and that we would be able to do even more than what he did. That we'd be able to see him at work even more than his disciples did. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So I want to I call the band uh, up. We're going we're gonna to just take a couple minutes and worship God in song before we go. Um, but, uh, but here's the big idea that I want to try to get our heads around. In your heavenly Father's house, there's a place for you. And Jesus is the invitation. Jesus is the ticket, if you will. He's the door. In your heavenly Father's house, there's a place for you, and Jesus is the way to get there. He said, I am the way to know God. I am the way. Believe in me. Now, remember the context. 1,400 years, nobody says God's name. No one articulates it in any way. And Jesus responds by saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Up until this point, no one would even say God's proper name. What does that mean? The implication of that is that God is impersonal. He doesn't have a name. We don't, we don't say it. Uh, we don't interact with that God that way. We don't have a relationship with him. I mean, if you have a friend, you say their name because we'll be punished if we get it wrong or uh, you know, we better not even attempt to get personal with God. And Jesus says, no, no, in my Father's house, there are many rooms, and I have prepared one for you. 1,400 years, nobody even knows how to approach God. Nobody even really knows if it's possible. And Jesus says, if you know me, you know my Father. And from now on, you do know him. You know him, and you have seen him in me. So I'm going to ask you if you would stand up with me. Jesus asked the most important question of all in John 11. He said, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe in me? You know, there's nothing more important to me than knowing that the people I love have an understanding of who Jesus is and, and what he's done for them. There's nothing that's more important to me than having the people I love understand that there's a place for you in God's house, uh, that there's, there's safety at the end of this journey, uh, that the narrative it ends well for you, that you're part of God's family. Jesus has brought you in. That's, that's the most important thing in the world to me, is just to know that the people I love understand that. 
So I want to invite you today. We're just going to sing one last song. Jess is going to, is going to lead us. And uh, I want to just invite you to consider the question, do I, do I believe that? That God has a place for me in his home. And uh, I just want to encourage you to respond to him through worship. Just sing to him. Pastor Rick will come up and kick us out. And uh, we'll go about our way.